Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Reasons to Believe, with a message titled, The Father and the Son. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 16 to 29, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm one of those individuals who had a great relationship with his earthly dad. My father's been dead now for a number of years, but I still miss him a great deal. You know, once while he was on his deathbed, he asked me to pray that he would die quickly, and and that broke my heart. I told him that I couldn't do it, but he reminded me that, that Christ was calling him and that I should take courage and pray most earnestly for his quick death. I say this because I want you to understand the kind of relationship that I had with him. No, he wasn't a a perfect father, but he was a loving father, and I was given what so many other men don't have, a healthy, loving relationship with my dad. See, I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I, I don't have unresolved anger issues toward my father. I've been blessed by a man who taught me a lot about what it means to be a man. You know, I think I also have that kind of relationship with my son, and so by God's grace, God has continued to bless our family. Again, I mention this because I have a great many male friends who have had a very difficult relationship with their dads, and and the pain they've experienced, I mean, it simply moves my heart when I watch that in them. But I mention this also because when we read the Bible, we know that our God, who is one, yet exists eternally as three distinct persons. One God in three persons. Now, I know, I know, there are no earthly parallels to that, but that is what the Bible explicitly teaches. But the Bible also teaches that the first two persons of the Godhead are Father and Son. Now, if you want to understand that, think of it in this way. You know, because I have a son, let me explain a few things about my son. He's fully human, just like me. He's inherited the genetic structure from the genetic material of his mom and his dad. He is like his dad, and he has a point of beginning, and just like his dad, he will one day die. He is one among many. So in this way, my son shares in my substance and in my essence. That's what it means for my son to be my son. He is begotten of his earthly father. Well, God the Father also has a son. And because the Father is the one and only God, then if his son shares in his essence or his substance, then the son must also be the one true God. Since God is eternal from eternity past to eternity future, then just like the Father, the Son is also eternal. That is, there is no time when the Son did not exist. And that's why Christian theologians have consistently said that the Son is not just begotten of the Father, but that he's eternally begotten of the Father. And yeah, that's basic Trinitarian language. And as we've been discussing John chapter 5, we've just heard Jesus call God his Father, and the Jewish religious leaders immediately understood that he was claiming equality with God. Indeed, that's what he was doing. And here's where we come back to my opening illustration. Have you ever wondered what kind of relationship the Father and the Son actually enjoy? We know that there is no sin in God, but how do these two persons, the Father and the Son, relate to each other? John chapter 5, 16 to 29 is set in a context. Jesus has healed a paralyzed man, and the upshot of all of that is that there's a firestorm. Jesus is being charged with violating the Sabbath. 
You'll remember that he called the healed man to pick up his mat and go home. So carrying one's mat on the Sabbath was considered a violation of the Pharisees' interpretation of what it meant to refrain from work. And so a debate ensues, and in the process, Jesus says that just as his father is always working on the Sabbath, so he does as well. And immediately, the Pharisees charged him with claiming equality with God, which is, which is precisely what he's done. And then following that altercation is a lengthy teaching of Jesus on the kind of relationship that he enjoys with his father. And at this point, one gets the feeling from reading this account that Jesus is now not just speaking to the Pharisees, but to the crowd who are aware that he's healed a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And so it would seem the crowd's ready to hear him out. If, as the son, he claims equality with the father, just what kind of relationship does he have with the father? Now, before I get into the details, might I pause here just for a moment and address the question that some of you might be asking me right now. You might be saying, so what? What does all of that matter to me? How can any of this be more than theory rather than something that I, that I can apply to my life? Now, I'd like to respond to that in two ways. First, there are times when we really shouldn't make personal application our first priority. There have to be times in which we just see something greater than our own problems and our own concerns. We need an exalted vision of the greatness of God so that we don't reduce everything to how to have a better marriage or how to handle our finances well. I mean, sometimes and somewhere, we need to forget about ourselves and lose ourselves by being overwhelmed by the glory of God. That's my first point. Well, I have a second point as well. The relationship between the father and the son is supposed to be a pattern which we develop in our relationship. How do I know that? Well, listen to a part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. I'm reading here from Jesus' prayer in John 17, verse 11. There Jesus prays, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. In other words, we're supposed to learn unity among ourselves from observing the kind of relationship the Father and the Son enjoy. And so if you don't know very much about the kind of relationship the Father and the Son enjoy, how are you going to learn about a healthy relationships in your own life? You have absolutely no pattern from which to draw. Well, all of that's background, so let's read our text. I'm reading John 5, 19 to 24. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Now, as this is a complicated passage, let me try to outline it first. Verse 19a, that's the first verse we read, is the primary statement. You know, that one statement defines the kind of relationship the father and the son enjoy. 
And then following that statement, you're going to notice that Jesus uses the word for or because four times in what follows. So in verse 19b, then in verse 20, then 21, and then finally in verse 22, those four statements, each beginning with the word for, tell us that once we understand the primary statement, we should then come to four separate conclusions that arise from the first statement. So what's the first statement? Jesus is saying that even though he's fully equal to the Father, even so, he's completely obedient to the Father. Notice he says that he never does anything of his own accord. The Son, he says, does only what he sees the Father doing. Now, that illustration would have been a very familiar illustration to the people listening. See, commonly in that culture, a father would teach his son a trade, and then, in order to learn the trade, the son would copy the father. He learned the skills of the trade through imitation. So a son that did only what he saw his father doing was in fact learning the trade very well. A good son would imitate his dad. So imagine for a moment Jesus' relationship with Joseph. So Joseph's a carpenter. As Jesus grew, if you needed carpentry done in your house, well, once Jesus was trained, it wouldn't matter if Joseph came or Jesus came, they did the same. That's because a good son would only do what he saw his father doing. Now, using an image everyone in that day understood, Jesus applies that to his relationship with his divine father. He does only that which he sees his father doing. Now, that might surprise some of us. That's because in our culture, obedience, submission, subordination to someone else, that's seen as a sign of weakness or a sign of a lower social status. But Jesus, who is equal to the Father, says he submits to the Father in everything. And when we think about it, that says a lot about our relationships today. Submitting to your boss at work is not a sign that you're inferior. Wives submitting to their husbands, Christians submitting to their lawful leaders, all of that submission is not a sign of lesser status. In the Christian faith, submission is not a sign that we're being demeaned. Indeed, as we're going to see, the kind of submission that happens when the son submits to the father is a submission within an environment of perfect love. Indeed, I invite you to the cultural reality within the Trinity. What greater investment could there be than providing tools to engage our children in God's Word? Well, that's the intent of Back to the Bible Kids. Three mobile games designed to teach and encourage Bible knowledge and scripture memorization. So take some time to sit down with your son or your daughter or grandchild today and visit Back to the Bible Kids online at backtothebible.ca and discover what it's all about. Or go ahead, download the games for free at the Apple and Google Play stores. Bible ABCs, Bible coloring, or Noah's Elephant in the Room can be yours to play today for free. And if you'd like more information about all the ministry resources and programs of Back to the Bible Canada, or you'd like to support the ministries with a financial gift, call us today, would you, at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at Back to the Bible. Let's remind ourselves what Jesus said. He never does anything that he has not seen his father doing. He's imitating his father perfectly. 
Now, I have a very similar experience because I was raised on a farm. So I watched my dad milk the cows and plant the crops in the spring and harvest in the fall and fix barns and care for the nutrition and well-being of the cows and drive tractors and everything my father did, I did as well. I, I imitated dad. And that's what Jesus is saying. Everything you see me doing, changing water into wine, driving out money changers in the temple, telling Nicodemus to be born again, and telling the Samaritan woman at the well that he had something to satisfy her soul, the miracles, and even the healing of this lame man on the Sabbath, that's the very thing that my father does. I did it as an obedient son. That means, of course, that Jesus never acts independently of his father. Jesus never acts separately from his father. And once we establish that, Jesus now gives us four conclusions that come from that statement. So you remember that each one of those conclusions starts with the word for or because. The first of those conclusions is found in the first part of verse 19. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So Jesus is explaining why it is that he healed a man on the Sabbath and then told him to take up his mat and go home. That, he says, is exactly how my father operates. The father is always working. And that is to say, my father is always sustaining the universe. And so we know that as a son, I am always sustaining the universe. My father is always providentially arranging all things for his glory, and that's exactly how the son is operating. The father is merciful, even to paralytics, lying on a mat outside of, the, of a pool in Bethesda. And that's exactly how merciful the son is as well. And so if the son always acts in submission to his father, you would expect that all the works of the son are in perfect harmony to the father. That's the first conclusion. Now to the second one, that's found in, in verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Now, I might summarize that statement by saying that there are no secrets between the father and the son. That means that there is nothing about the nature or the glory or the, the character or the attributes and being of the father or the plans of the father that the son does not know perfectly and absolutely. Now, in contrast, you and I, I mean, we see the Father is surrounded by mystery. I remember a number of years ago, a group of Jehovah's Witnesses showed up at my door and they asked me to explain the Trinity. Well, I did. And after a while, they said, but that doesn't help us understand everything. Well, I agreed. They said, well, then how do you explain that? And I said, well, I don't even understand my own wife, let alone my God. But I believe this, because the Bible teaches this, I believe it. I believe it not because I understand it, but because the Father has taught it to me. You see, we should say that we'll never get our mental or intellectual arms around God. Listen to Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The highest thoughts that we have ever thought have not come close to God's thoughts, except in the case of Jesus. His highest thoughts are exactly equal to the highest thoughts of the Father. The Father has shown him everything. But of course, if you're paying attention, you're going to notice the last part of this statement that greater works than these will he show him. So in context, the greater means greater than the healing of this paralyzed man. But there is more. 
The fact that the father is continually showing the son all he is doing, well, that means what some theologians have called a continuous self-disclosure between the father and the son. That's to say, the father and the son are constantly communicating. They never give each other the silent treatment. And why is that? Because all of this perfect communication between the father and the son is because, as Jesus says, the father loves the son. The communication between father and son is the communication of love and the communication of perfect openness between them. The father never hides his agenda from the son. Now, there's something important for us to learn here, don't you think? When the son submits to his father, it's not a submission that is disconnected from the father's plans. That's to say the father has never hidden his agenda from the son. That would be unloving. And we can learn from this. Hidden agendas destroy relationships. Perfect relationships are based in self-disclosure. Well, okay, we've seen that the son's submission to the father has led us to two conclusions. First, the son never acts on his own. And second, the father discloses everything to the son. Now, let's go to our third conclusion again, starting with the word for. I'm reading verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Aha! Here things get really practical, don't you think? I mean, raising the dead is a theme that should interest every one of us. I mean, after all, we're all going to die. And the promise that there's going to be life after the destruction of our bodies, well, I don't have to get you to pay attention. You should be. You know, there is in our world today a vibrant and growing cryogenics industry. That's because people who are afraid of death have their body frozen in the hope that at some time in the future, there's going to be a cure for their disease and for aging, and they're going to be brought back and live forever. You know, I can't even begin to tell you what a scam I think that is. But that's not the reason I raise this. I only raise this because I know that raising the dead is of vital interest to every human being. And in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 5 verse 7, the king of Israel asks, Am I God? to kill and make alive. In other words, only God has the power to do that. But because the Son and the Father act in perfect harmony, the Son also raises the dead. That then explains how Jesus made a paralytic walk. And it will also explain how it is that Jesus has mastery over death. And that brings us to the last because or four statements or the last conclusion that we come to from the truth that the Son never acts independently of the Father. Look again at verses 22 to 23. Four, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. See, the Father has determined that it will not be His direct task to judge anyone, but has entrusted or designated that all judgment should be entrusted to the Son. That means that at the end of the age, God the Father has mandated that every human being will stand before Jesus and give an account of their life and be judged by Him. So let me illustrate something here. I want you to imagine a military commander who commands troops into battle. A commander will command his troops to follow him, but the commander we have in mind has the absolute loyalty of his troops. But as brave and as dedicated as his troops may be, I'm going to tell you exactly at what point they will no longer obey their commander. All troops stop obeying 
the moment an enemy bullet strikes and kills them. At that moment, all obedience ceases. The commander may demand they carry on, but death commands more authority than a commander on a battlefield, except in the case of Jesus. He stands before the graves of every single man and woman. He commands the dead that they must obey, and every single man and woman will rise and either be rewarded or condemned before him. That's the authority of Jesus. Well then, how are we as human beings to react to this one? Answer, in the only way possible. We must, according to verse 23, honor the Son even as we honor the Father. Look, how are we to honor the Father? Well, we are to bow before Him. We are to worship Him. We are to pledge our obedience to Him. We are to fear Him. We call Him Lord and God. We declare His eternal nature. All of that is honoring God. Well, all of that also is due Jesus as well. In fact, says Jesus, failing to honor Jesus in worship and in prayer and in sacrifice and in honor as equal with God is an insult to the Father. And that's exactly how the Father and the Son relate to each other. What we have here is not rivalry between Father and Son, but what we have here is eternal love between the Father and the Son in which the Father honors the Son and the Son honors the Father and they act constantly in concert with each other. And that, my dear friends, is how the Father and the Son relate to each other. So our response has to be in two ways. First of all, that we worship this God. And secondly, that we also learn how in our relationships to others, we might copy the illustration that the Father has given us. John, will you help us just a little bit more uh, in respect to the Father and Son being one, and yet the importance of relationship? Yeah, the entire language of the Trinity is relational language, that our our God is a relational God, that there is, uh, you know, sometimes theologians have used this uh, word, the ad intra works of the Trinity. What happens within the Trinity? What kind of a dynamic relationship is formed there? And, and all of that's very important because the Bible speaks of it over and over again. And I think as believers who want to know God, it should interest us greatly to know how the Father and the Son interact with each other and how the Holy Spirit, who is, you know, the spirit of their love, who is himself a person. I mean, all of that is a great mystery and yet a wonderful mystery to explore. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. So I want to say God has a special purpose for Back to the Bible. And Back to the Bible has a specific place in God's program. Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating its 60th anniversary in 2018. 60 years of faithful Bible teaching. 60 years maintaining its commitment to teach the Bible with accuracy and integrity. We want to thank so many who have made this ministry possible. Today, there are still those supporting the daily Bible teaching program who began listening in the 50s. And since then, generation after generation have been impacted by this critical mission. So if Back to the Bible Canada is or continues to be an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, consider sustaining this ministry with your prayers and financial gifts. 
Celebrate all that God has done and what He continues to do through the teaching of His Word. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.